Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Charles J. Ennis, the Director of Animal Health at the New England Aquarium, where I ask him, how are turtles doing these days, and are they the same thing as tortoises? Okay, so welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I'm so excited for this for this episode today because today's episode is about turtles and tortoises, all things turtles. I have Dr. Charles J. Ennis, who is the Director of Animal Health at the New England Aquarium. So you're a literal veterinarian expert of turtles and tortoises. I work on all sorts of animals, but I do work with turtles and tortoises as a big part of my job. So when you say that you're a vet, honey, it's you do all the animals. Yeah. I mean, earlier in my career, I was a regular dog-cat vet. I worked in a small animal hospital, but I also took care of people's ferrets and rabbits and snakes and iguanas and whatever anyone wanted to bring in. But being a vet is like arguably like harder than even being a doctor because you, like your patients don't talk. And doesn't it take like forever? It's similar to being a physician where uh, we go through medical school training for four years and then there's years of practice experience afterwards to develop the specialty. So once you were um, doing like, you know, you're like, you know, had patients, you had clients, like you're just like, you know, being like, like a gorgeous, you know, veterinarian in the world. And then how did you realize that you wanted to start working like more, you know, at like aquarium and like zoo life and tortoise life? Well, I was always interested in wildlife and non-domestic animals. And so when I was in practice, I wanted to see people's iguanas and turtles and snakes and things like that. And by practicing on them for a long time, I gained enough skills that I was hireable into a more specialized position at the aquarium. And you weren't just like terrified of snakes, like you're interested in I, them? I love snakes. Oh yeah. my God, they yeah. really scared the bejesus. I heard your snake episode. Oh my yes. God, snakes yes. really just yes. scare yeah. me to high heaven. Yes. So, but you, so you, so once you got kind of that, like, you know, in real life experience with like, you know, different sorts of what, like, what are like different animals called like that aren't dogs and cats, like non-domestic animals? Like, yeah, we call them wildlife species or zoological species, non-domestic species. So once you got more experience with those ones, then you got enough experience to like be like hired, like at an aquarium. Right. You learn how to take your skills that you've learned for, um, domestic animals Things like surgical skills, anesthesia skills, endoscopy, ultrasound. And you, you start applying too? those to all these other species. Do you have to do sure. anesthesia? Absolutely. All the time. That's wow. what we do. That's what we do. We do everything we need to determine the health of our patients, including turtles, and, uh, and then try to make them better. So a vet, there's not like an anesthesiologist or, anesth- or an anesthesiologist specifically in vets? Like the vet has to do all of it. General practitioners like me do all of it. There are uh, specialties within vet medicine with more advanced training. So there are veterinary anesthesiologists, and that's all that they do. But um, we in the aquarium world often have to do all of those things for all of the different species that we work with. So, I've, so like, I learned when I interviewed um, David Letterman, well, when David Letterman interviewed me, that, like, when you're a journalist, you're supposed to do a lot of, like, pre-research on everything, but then I realized that I'm more of, like, a pseudo-wannabe, like, journalist-adjacent person where I don't like to do too, too much because I just like to kind of go in with, like, knowing what I know, and if I, because if I do too much pre-research, then it's, like, I just kind of, like, like to learn in real time, you know what I mean? So that's part of, like, what, you know, we're doing. So, like, in, in my getting, you know, in just chatting to you, but I can't help but hear the word aquarium and think, 
The Cove. I can't help it. I watched that documentary in like 2013 or 14. It's like super charmed me ever since, which I think it's traumatized everyone that ever watched it. So I was reading about the New England Aquarium where you work, which has not had a dolphin in more than 20 years. So you guys were kind of evolved on like the big animals and aquariums thing a hot second ago. Like, it wasn't just a little bit ago. Yeah, we made a conscious decision that our facility was not conducive to maintaining dolphins any longer a long time ago. And we continue to make decisions like that all the time. So if there's a species that we work with that we've been trying really hard with, but we just determine that they are not adapted to our setting, then we move on from that and we work with other species that do better for us. So... What do you say to people that, like, just hear aquarium and are like, like, they just get squirmy? Like, what's the importance of aquariums to, like, wildlife conservation and to wildlife research? Like, because I think there's a pretty important role there, but I think it's hard for people to be able to connect those dots, like, not having context. Yeah. Uh, The aquarium where I work and many aquariums and zoos worldwide contribute a lot to global wildlife conservation. Um, We contribute as much as some of the big name wildlife conservation organizations that your listeners might be familiar with. So um, annually, um, the team that I work with is out in the field studying whales, uh, studying dolphins, studying sustainable fishing practices. We do a lot of sea turtle rehabilitation. uh, And through the aquarium's messaging in the building itself, when visitors come to us, they're getting educated about the ocean, climate change, problems facing wildlife, and what they can do as individuals and what their communities can do to deal with that. I love that. So so it really is, or I mean, it just... When you're working in these in these like settings, it's like you're just getting such a different kind of like experience. Because like I don't think I'm ever going to hold a tortoise. Like I mean, or maybe you I could. already have. I mean, I guess if I you could. Wanted to. But it's like I mean, you're having such a you know intimate experience with these animals that like are thousands of. I mean, there's been tortoises on the world for like a hot second, right? Millions, yeah. About around 250 million years, the turtles have been on Earth, uh, longer than dinosaurs, you know, or before dinosaurs. So what's the difference between, because I was just asking right before, I don't know if we got it on, but it's like tortoises and turtles. Word on the street, they're not the same? Who knew? Well, it's it's mostly a language usage thing in the English language. We tend to use tortoise to apply to things that live on land and turtles for things that live in the water. But there's also the word terrapin, which is another word for an aquatic turtle. Um, and in different versions of English, it's different too. Like in England, they refer to a lot of freshwater turtles as terrapins, but in the U.S., we mostly refer to terrapin for one particular species that lives in salt marshes around here. Interesting. Yeah. And there are some tortoises, uh, sorry, some turtles that live on land, but we don't refer to them as tortoises just because that's the vernacular. So a thing like a box turtle, which you find around here as a kid, uh, is actually a land turtle, but we still call it a turtle. You know, some people might call that a tortoise. So there's not a scientific distinction. So it, the New England, the New England Aquarium, for instance, like you mentioned, rehab is that like something that happens at a lot of places? Like we, like, like what happens to turtles? Uh, well, turtles need rehab for a lot of reasons. Uh, many turtles around here get hit by cars every year, which is pretty sad. Um, sea turtles get hit by boats. They got get got caught in fishing gear. Uh, they get caught on fish hooks. Uh, they can be um, injured due to weather patterns. We, we are just seeing in New England right now a uh, stranding event that we refer to as cold stunning, where these sea turtles wash up on the beaches of Cape Cod every year when the weather gets cold like it is right now. So, so when I ha- left the hospital last night, we had 66 sea turtles in the hospital that just came in in the past few days. 
So what happens to them? Well, most of them recover. We have about uh, 80% of them that recover and we can release them back to the wild. It usually takes about 6 to 12 months before they can be released again. But um, some of them come into us and they've been very cold for a long time, so they may have pneumonia or other types of infections. Oh my God, there's turtle pneumonia? And so we have to treat them medically for a long time to rehabilitate them before they can be released. So, okay, you're minding your own business. You're at work. A call comes in. There, we got sixty six fucking almost frozen turtles on the on the beach. Yes. So what happens? Uh, well, we have a big team. My colleagues and I deploy our team, and we have a system in place where the turtles uh, are picked up by a network of volunteers on Cape Cod that's run through the Mass Audubon Group. Um, they drive all the turtles to our hospital in in uh, Quincy, Massachusetts. Oh my God! And um, sister we city of my hometown is it? Yes. Where are you from? Quincy, Illinois. Oh, beautiful. And it turns out that Quincy, I was on stage and I was like, oh, that's our sister city, except for it's spelled with a Z. And then everyone was like, no. It's it, just how we say it. Yeah. They were like, no, it's not. It's just how we fucking talk. And then everyone was like, dummy. And I was like, oh, who knew? So in Quincy, we have a sea turtle hospital. We have lots of big tanks and we have x-ray machines and blood analyzers and ultrasound equipment. And we determine exactly what's wrong with each individual turtle. We treat them specifically for what's wrong with them. We have a lot of volunteers that come in and help feed them every day and try to get them eating well. And uh, it goes on for weeks to months until they're ready to be released back to the wild. What if they're... What is there ever a turtle that's like too sick or too little or too much of a baby? And they just very rare, but it does happen. We have turtles sometimes that die on their own. Um, They usually die within a day or two of arriving to us because they are almost dead when they get to us, and some of those will not survive. It's very rare that we have to euthanize a turtle, though. They are very resilient animals, and um, almost always, if they survive the first few days with us, they can be released back to the wild. But occasionally, there is a Illness that's so bad that the most humane thing to do is to euthanize them. Is there any like crazy turtle illnesses that like we don't know or that like I don't that like a normal person would know about? Well, I think a lot of people are surprised just to know that turtles have most of the same types of illnesses that we have. I they, didn't know they, about turtle pneumonia. Yeah, they have all the same organs that we have for the most part. What about they, STDs? There are actually there are uh, herpes viruses that turtles can carry that we think are transmitted by direct contact and sexual contact would be one way. Does it affect their eyes like how cat herpes? It can is? affect their eyes. If you look online of t- turtle herpes, you'll find all of these big tumors that grow on their faces and on their flippers and sometimes internally in their lungs and other parts of their body. That are herpes? Herpes virus, not human herpes viruses. There's a lot of herpes viruses in the animal world, and they're not all the same type that humans get. Most animals have their own types of herpes viruses. So how do most turtles have sex? Uh, pretty sure they all do it the same way. Really? Yeah, yeah. Like water? Um, if you or think about the shape and, you know, there's not that much soft tissue exposed on a turtle, so they have to navigate around their shells. But they have like a penis and a vagina. They have one penis. Yeah, a male turtle has a penis. Uh, there's not really a vagina. So turtles like birds and fish and amphibians have a cloaca, right? So <gasps> everything exits through one opening. And so the male turtle puts oh his penis Oh my god. Wait, cloaca. wait, 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 yes. wait, 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 wait. So a cloaca is basically a, it's in, but so the poop and the pee and all of it's in one hole, basically. And the reproductive structure. So there's not right. a butthole and a vagina. There's just Correct. one. Correct. So poor female turtles, birds, and who else? Everything other than mammals. Fish. 
Oh my god! They, so they understand the pain of a bottom, honey. Poor things. <laughs> you don't understand what this is, but it's like, wow, poor fish and turtles. It's actually a lot simpler in some ways, right? Well, no, it's not, honey. That's spoken as someone who's never been a bottom. Uh, uh, yeah, I, that's a different podcast, and okay. I don't want to traumatize Very you. Very well. So, yeah, poor turtles. So they all have a cloaca and a penis, and then they they diddle. But then the, what's the where? And then the lady turtles have eggs. Yeah, so there's sperm that's produced by the male that goes up inside the cloaca. It goes up in the oviducts. They have ovaries, and their follicles ovulate like another species. The, all of the, the uh, ovaries' follicles get fertilized in the oviduct, and then those have uh, shells put around them, just like bird eggs do. So uh, after the shells are made, the turtle digs a hole somewhere, lays its eggs, and the babies incubate. There's no maternal care in turtles, right? So, so they, some turtles don't do maternal... So none, none do? Well, there's a couple of species that dig these uh, nest mounds, and they lay their eggs, and they'll protect them for a few weeks, but not for the full time, and they don't care for the babies after they hatch. Okay, Most turtles just lay, lay eggs in a hole, they go away, the babies hatch, and there's no mother around. Oh, okay, wait, we're going to be right back with more turtles, more questions, more Dr. Ennis right after the break. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. Hot off the press, we're talking about turtles. So no turtles have maternal instinct. Well, there's a few Southeast Asian species that uh, will protect the area where they lay their eggs for a few weeks. But that's only part of the incubation duration. So they eventually leave. And when the babies hatch, there's no mother around at that point. So, okay, switching gears a little bit, but still tortoise, what are the difference between, is there like fundamental differences between like sea turtles and land turtles or whatever? Like, do, like, do they have gills and land? Like, tell me everything. No, there's no gills. So sea turtles did evolve from land turtles and freshwater turtles about 200 million years ago, and they colonized the ocean. Uh, and living in the ocean is different than living in freshwater or on land, um, mostly because of the chemistry of the ocean. So, so there's the, freshwater turtles, sure. saltwater turtles, yep. and then land turtles. Yeah. And then is there some that do both? Not really. There's a few like around here in Jamaica Bay. There's the diamondback terrapin, which lives in salt marshes. So they're kind of halfway between freshwater and saltwater. Um, but they are one of the only, only examples that sort of straddles fresh and salt. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So when did the sea turtles evolve? To sea turtles, 200 million years ago, um, they colonized the oceans, and they had to develop mechanisms to deal with the salt content of salt water. So if you or I were to try to drink salt water as our water source, we would become rapidly dehydrated and we would eventually die. Sea turtles have evolved mechanisms through their kidneys and also through these glands behind their eyes, actually, that secrete salt. And so when you see a sea turtle... Uh, producing tears, a lot of the uh, tear content is actually salt that they're trying to eliminate because of the ocean environment that they they live in. Oh, that's interesting. Another mechanism they have to deal with salt is they've got these big pointed, uh, we call them papillae in their esophagus. So most animals have a smooth lined esophagus. Sea turtles, if you ever open up a sea turtle esophagus, it's an ooh and ah moment. They have these big pointy keratinized spikes in their esophagus. 
Look it up. And we have uh, a and, on our hairs, so that makes sense. It's like a spiky. Yep, but theirs are huge, and so they can eat a meal, and the meal gets caught in those papillae, and then they can regurgitate all the salt water that they just ingested with that meal. So they're not ingesting all of that salt, and that also helps them to live in the ocean and be able to maintain their electrolyte status. That's kind of gross. Well, that's really cool. But but I but it is cool. But like also like what are some other like interesting kind of like visually icky looking turtle things? Visually icky looking. Well, the penis that you mentioned earlier is one. So the turtle penis is sort of this uh, short mushroom shaped looking thing. It has a um, a groove down the center of it, so they don't pee through their penis. They only uh, move sperm through their penis. Where do they pee? They pee through their urethra directly into their cloaca. And so... So men have a so cloaca actually, too? No. Men's urethras run through their penis. The turtle urethra runs into the cloaca and not through the penis. So we can amputate a, tur- a turtle's penis if we have to, which comes up sometimes. Why? And it doesn't affect their ability to urinate. Why? Why? Um, because they are promiscuous and they can traumatize themselves sometimes. So they will be um, sometimes mounting things that look like a turtle. They'll try to copulate with a rock or a, some other inanimate object and they can injure themselves. They'll bruise it? They'll really damage it. And so we try to save it. We put it back in and try to fix it up. But times come when we have to amputate it. Wow. Yeah. So do boy turtles not have testicles? They do, but they're internal. They're up near their back underneath their shell. Yeah. And We've are actually they balls? developed methods to neuter turtles if we have to. Are they balls? They're little round things, yes. Yep. And so how do you do it? Because do you have to go through? Cause you, what? We do it through laparoscopy. So you've heard of minimally invasive surgery in other species. Uh-huh. So we can make these little incisions in front of their hind leg. We go in with scopes. Uh, and we can see the testis, and we can use instruments to remove them. And then, like, the turtle just comes out, and they're, like, not so horny and not trying to diddle everything Yeah, the anymore. same reason why you might neuter your dog. Sometimes in captivity, we neuter turtles. Yeah. Ah. Uh, yeah. And we spay turtles, too. Has there ever been, like, um, giant turtles? There still are. There's the leatherback turtle that still exists. It's the last remnant of its family that evolved around 100 million years ago. Leatherbacks are about five feet long, and they can weigh 1,000 to 2,000 pounds. And we do work with leatherbacks in New England. Five feet long and weighs... 1,000 to 2,000 pounds when they're full grown. Where did they naturally inhabit? They're worldwide in warm ocean environments. They're actually really interesting. They go through these very long migrations, so they tend to nest in tropical habitats. In this part of the world, they nest in the Caribbean, Florida... But they migrate huge distances. So we see leatherbacks off of Cape Cod in Canada in the win- in the uh, summertime, and then in the wintertime they go back. They migrate all the way to South America and the Caribbean. To Holy shit! Their during their breeding season. So sometimes, like a leatherback might get hit by a boat or something. It might end up. Yeah. Really? We see leatherbacks hit by boats. We also see leatherbacks getting wrapped up in ropes from fishing gear that's in the ocean, just the way we do with whales. So one of our big concerns for leatherbacks and other sea turtles are these um, industry interactions with shipping and also uh, the fishing industry. So is there anything that like any normal person can do to help with that? Is there any like or just does it, like donations or something like? Well, from the boating perspective, uh, we think that a lot of sea turtles that get hit by boats are actually hit by recreational boaters. 
And so if you are in areas like some parts of Florida where sea turtles are very common during their nesting season, uh, we ask that boaters really be paying attention. Try not to have your boat on super fast autopilot while you're partying on the back. You know, be looking straight ahead and making sure that you're looking out for all the animals that might be in your way. So there could be the gigantic leather turtles in Florida? Yes, they nest in Florida, usually in the early springtime, late winter. Yeah, Really? Yeah, Juneau Beach is a hot spot. If you're ever there in the late February, March into early April, you may see leatherbacks nesting. Yeah, it's when, really cool. When I was in the Philippines in 2013, I was on this island called Palawan with my cousin. I was in the Philippines in 2013 on Palawan. Ah, oh, what month? When you were there. I don't know, maybe July. I was there in February. I was there in July. Oh, we weren't there. There was a big turtle confiscation there. Well, I, That's why I, why I was there. Well, there was these, um, when I was on the beach and there was these like nets up around like, you know, like, like box nets, like, and then they're like, oh, these turtles aren't going to hatch until like whatever date. But then like the next day, these little baby turtle hatchlings came up and they were called like the olive turtle, I think. Olive Ridley. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I saw these little baby sea turtles, but they said that they take them to like, a turtle experience. sanctuary to like, let them like get big. So, cause they were like, if, if they just let them out of those little things right then, then only like one would survive. But they said they take them to this other place, to, like let them get bigger and get their shells hard and stuff. That's called head starting. So we do that with some turtles that are very prone to predation when they're babies. We can raise them in captivity for six months or a year, get them to a much larger size. So they'll survive better. Do they learn, do they lose their little wild instincts when you do no, that? No, we don't think so. Turtles are pretty hardwired and we change take um, precautions not to imprint them too much when they're with us. Um, so we have good results, um, good data to suggest that head-started turtles that are released actually do survive pretty well. Because do you give them like a little collar or something? Um, not necessarily a collar, but some sort of uh, microchip or a radio tag or uh, a tissue marker that we can implant on them. Yeah, there's various ways. What was the turtle confiscation of 2014? So there's a, there's a turtle called the Palawan Forest Turtle. That um, is very rare. They're only found on that island in the whole world. They were only discovered about 20 years ago. And um, because of their rarity, they're uh, prized in the illegal wildlife trade. So people will spend thousands of dollars for one individual of that species to have it in their private collection. That's true of other species of wildlife that are in the wildlife trade. So there was a giant confiscation. Almost 3,000 of these turtles had been collected by poachers. They were stationed in a warehouse ready to be shipped off the island when they were intercepted by the local authorities. And then they called in veterinarians from around the world to go help with all of those turtles, rehabilitate them. And we released the majority of them back into the forests on the island. Were they okay? Not all of them. Uh, we had uh, about half of the group initially that looked okay. But the other half had been captive for a long time. They we saw a lot of pneumonia, a lot of shell infections. What shell infections? A lot infection of eye infections. Well, in the worst case scenario, shell infection eats all the way through their shell and exposes their internal organs, and they die. Um, if we catch it soon enough and there's still shell left, we can surgically clean it up, uh, get them on antibiotics for a long time, and they can re regenerate parts of their shell. Actually. I wanted to ask about that. Yeah. So, is that a thing? Shell regeneration? Yes, the shell is bone. Um, it's the type of bone that our ribs and our vertebrae are made of. So that's how the shell evolved is from expansion of the bones that form your vertebrae and your ribs. And so it has bone healing properties like other bone does. So if the bone has blood supply and we prevent infection and we get the bone edges near each other, uh, it can heal just like any other broken bone can heal. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, so it's amazing. 
So if so if there's but if there gets to be a hole in the shell it can still heal. So turtles are really amazing in that if there's a full thickness hole in their shell and the bone is gone, they will start laying down layers of scar tissue. We call it fibrous connective tissue. And it's sort of this uh, spongy, pink, soft tissue. But over time, it fills in the void. And over years, it mineralizes. So it turns into new bone. And we are just working on trying to document that on a microscopic level. It's never really been thoroughly described. And we see it with our naked eye when we watch turtles heal. But we're really interested in how they can regenerate bone to that capacity because that could have implications for bone healing in other species too. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It makes the vets look good, but really the turtles did all the work. We had one last year that had, um, because of frostbite, it lost a large section of its carapace, which is the top shell of the turtle. And the bone and all the ribs associated with it sloughed away. And so it's got this, you know, 8-inch by 12-inch wide area of soft tissue exposure. And just under it is its lung. And when it's breathing, you can see it's There's only it's one tissue. lung? There's two lungs. Oh. But this is on one side of this turtle. When it breathes, you can see the tissue moving and its lung is right under it. So you could imagine how uh, prone to trauma that would be in the wild. So we're keeping that turtle captive for probably another year or so as that fibrous connective tissue forms and whenever we think it's mineralized enough and strong enough, we'll release that turtle. Wow. So, okay. So, okay. So there's the turtle and then the turtle shell. And then below the shell is just like like a thin skin. And then all of its organs are just floating yeah, around. All in the there. organs are in there. So just below on the top shell, the carapace, just below that are the lungs, one on each side. They've got a right and a left lung, just like we do. Behind the lungs on the top are the gonads and the kidneys. And then below that, like on our, the equivalent of our belly, if you go under the plastron, which is the shell that's on their belly, uh, there's the stomach and liver and pancreas, gallbladder, all the usual organs that we have. So between the bottom shell and the top shell, there's no shells in the middle? No, that's right. It's all soft tissue inside there. Yeah. Oh. Well, that's not true. They've got their shoulder girdle and their pelvic girdle. So the bones that support their front legs and their hind legs are inside their shell. So no turtles get new shells. And then like they don't like leave one shell and go to no they don't like molt a hermit their crab. shell. They do not. That's a common like Bugs Bunny cartoon where the turtle used to hop out of his shell and go on, you know, a race with Bugs Bunny. That doesn't happen. So if a turtle loses its shell uh, to a large enough degree, it will be a dead turtle. Yeah. So what so there's so is this turtle that's healing now at the aquarium that had like the eight inch by twelve inch like hole? Has there ever been a turtle where like the whole back of its back got like bit off or fell off and it like and the whole thing regenerated? Yeah, we've seen turtles uh, in the wild where it looks like that has happened, um, particularly after exposure to fire. So some of the land tortoises uh-huh. that might be burned during fires, uh, we've actually seen them exteriorize the burned section of their shell. And underneath it, they're growing a new layer of shell. It's pretty amazing. It takes a long time, but it does happen. Oh, my God. Okay, well, on that note, uh, I'm going to let you guys go have a little cry. And then we're going to take a really quick break. And we'll be right back with more Dr. Ennis after that. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. So we're talking all things turtles with Dr. Charles Ennis. Uh, so we were talking briefly about the wildlife trade 
illegal wildlife trade. So how widespread is that? How big of an issue is that? It's huge. Uh, if, along with uh, you know weapons and drugs and human sex trafficking, the wildlife trade is one of the biggest uh, illegal global trades. Uh, it affects all species of animals. Um, the popular ones that most people have heard of are the trade in uh, is the trade in elephant ivory, rhino horns, things like that. Um, but there's a huge global trade in turtle products and live turtles. There's a huge trade in bizarre animals like pangolins. Actually, is one of the biggest. Um, uh, species that's in demand right now. Um, that's like those like rare kind of armadillo-looking things. Yeah, yeah, they've got these scales. The scales are valued in uh, traditional medicine in some parts of the world, and um, there are confiscations of thousands and thousands of pounds of pangolin skins. Are uh, turtle products... What are turtle products, and what are they lucrative for? Uh, well, the meat is eaten, so just the meat products themselves. Um, but also, the shell is thought to have medicinal properties in some parts of the world. So, powdered turtle shell, um, powdered turtle bone, um, and uh, and then live turtles to meet the demands of uh, exotic wildlife. Collectors. That's one thing I didn't ever. So yeah. there's uh, like there's exotic turtle collectors. Yeah, like in any uh, exotic pet. Um, niche people get into their thing and there's definitely um collectors that uh are into turtles and i actually i myself i'm sort of a collector i mean i got into it when i was a kid i kept pet turtles when i was a kid i kept turtles that i bought through the pet trade that now i know better that i should not have bought when i was younger um and i've tried to convert that now into a passion for uh turtle conservation so at my home right now i am still keeping turtles but i'm breeding them, and they're parts of uh, sanctioned breeding programs for endangered species. Oh, uh, how many endangered species of turtles is there in, in, in North America? Our native species, uh, about half of them are threatened in some capacity worldwide. Also, we think about half. So there's about 350 turtle species in the world, and we think about half of them are threatened in some way. Uh, and that's due to habitat destruction, the illegal pet trade, um, uh, disease, um, being hit by cars, things like that. So globally, humans have had a pretty negative impact on turtle populations in general. With turtles generally that end up in rehab or end up like injured, is it a plastics issue or is it like boating and like ropes? It's varied. Um, plastics is one thing that I uh, am um, sort of on a bandwagon about. I, I think the plastics things for turtles has been overstated, actually. Um, turtles have many bigger problems than drinking straws. The The drinking straw thing got a lot of PR. It was a viral video, and you know it, it was a sad case. But uh, compared to the number of turtles that are involved with fishing interactions um, hit and hit by cars... Uh, Plastics are actually a fairly small component of turtle problems. So what are the biggest threats that turtles face? Well, just looking out the window here in New York this morning, just, you know, habitat loss is the biggest thing in North America anyway. In Europe, um, we uh, keep expanding our population, expanding our neighborhoods, expanding our cities. Uh, and the habitats, the wetland habitats and forests where turtles live are becoming fewer and fewer. And they're not connected to each other anymore. So... Turtles are forced to try to find other turtles by moving across highways. The females, when they are carrying their eggs, go listing, look, looking for nest sites, and they cross roads sometimes to do that. 
And so a lot of adult turtles are killed every year um, by vehicles just due to habitat loss. Um, and then in the oceans, as we mentioned, the big things are um, fishing interactions and, and boat vessel interactions. And uh, uh, can't even handle. So zoos, aquariums. I think it's interesting that you had your own evolution on just you've been a lifelong like person who's been interested in turtles your whole life. You've like had a evolution on like, you know, captive turtles as even the aquarium that you work for or work with has had its own evolution. So it's like, where do you see that kind of wider evolution going in aquarium spaces and how it relates to conservation and, and kind of animal care? I think we are uh, moving in a direction of conservation and sustainable animal collections. Uh, the public is no longer tolerant of zoos and aquariums that do a bad job. They don't want to see a menagerie of individual animals in small cages. They want to know that the animals that are in captivity, um, under human care, being cared for, for educational purposes, uh, are having good welfare, that their social demands are being met, that their psychological needs are being met, uh, that they have big habitats that are interesting to them where they can display their full repertoire of normal behaviors. So how do you do that? I just wrote down like happy animals. Like how do you do yeah, that? Happy animals. Well, first, as we think about it all the time, um, we I work with a group of a few hundred professionals and every day when we go to work, our mission is to take good care of our animals, make sure that our animals are healthy, that their welfare is met, that they are um, doing an effective job at teaching the kids that come through the aquarium every year and the adults that come through that uh, their messages are, is important and that conservation is important. So we are just constantly reviewing our policies. Um, we have a full-time vet team at our aquarium, three veterinarians and five veterinary technicians. We have uh, 100 or more animal care professionals that do all the daily feeding and cleaning and all of that. But like generally, is it that you just make sure they have like like enough friends, they have enough like plants that they would have in their natural habitat? Yes. Yeah. So we talk about uh, habitat enrichment, um, psychological enrichment. We want to make sure that the animals have things to look at, to pay attention to, to um, be interested in so that they feel like they're in a more natural environment and all of their natural behaviors can be um, portrayed. How do you keep, like, you know, like, if you have, like, fish at home, like, don't you have to, like, change the water? Yeah, and if you have a small fish tank with no filtration systems or any other life support system, the water will get contaminated with the waste products from that animal. And so um, in big situations, like where I work, we have uh, sophisticated mechanical systems like you would see in a sewer treatment plant where the water comes out of the exhibit, goes through multiple different types of water treatment, uh, mechanical systems, and then gets returned in. So it gets disinfected, the chemical waste gets removed, the particulate matter waste products get removed. And uh, if it's functioning well, uh, we have a very stable, chemically stable, environmentally stable system. But you guys have to have like a solar generator or something like in case like the power goes out or something? We do. We have backup systems. Uh, we do worry where I am right on the harbor in Boston Harbor. Um, we get these big storm surges now uh, that are increasing in frequency. And uh, we're talking a lot about our resilience and especially our ability to deal with power outages during storms. So, yes, we have a lot of backup systems to be able to keep all of the systems running. That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. So... What about, like, acidification of oceans and how that, like, mm -hmm. relates to turtles? Is, like, is that a thing? 
So far, we don't think it has much impact on turtles um, because turtles uh, are getting a lot of their uh, nutritional needs from things that they eat. Uh, and the pH of the water, the acidification of the water, is less of an impact on air-breathing animals like turtles than it might be on things like fish and corals. So turtles never have gills. Turtles do not have gills. They have a uh, trachea like we have and two lungs. And so they come to the surface, they take uh, a breath, and they breathe just like we do. So even sea turtles, they got to like, uh, see, in my imagination, they were just down there like Nemo, honey, just like never coming up. No, they do need to surface to breathe. And that's why sometimes uh, sea turtles can drown in fishing gears if they're caught in a fishing net or in a trawl underwater and they can't breathe just from the water. They have to come to the surface to be able to breathe. Dev. Yeah. yeah. So how do we really do surgeries on little turtles like you just gotta how does it happen how does it work there's two ways so historically uh we used to make incisions through the bone of their shell which is invasive as you can imagine it's like cutting our skull open to do brain surgery which can be done but if you can avoid doing that that's the better way so over my career colleagues and i have worked to develop methods of minimally invasive surgery for turtles so using these instruments that really have been designed for human pediatric surgeries uh, for laparoscopy, we can make very small incisions in the soft body parts aside from the shell, like in front of the hind leg or in front of the front leg, and we can put a scope into their body and view all of their internal organs. And as soon as you can see it, that means you have an opportunity to do something with it. And so... Now, if a turtle has a bladder stone or a turtle has a fish hook in its stomach, almost always we can get that out of their body without cutting through their shell. And that's really been an advancement over the past 30 years or so. So do you know about like, like what, like what's like the most endangered like turtle ever, like, or like right now that's like still alive? Right now? Well, um, there's a couple that just went extinct or no! marginally extinct. So we know you may have heard of Lonesome George, who is the last of the Pinta Island tortoises in the Galapagos. He died a couple of years ago. The Fernandina tortoise in the Galapagos we thought was extinct, but one of the National Geographic teams recently just found an individual, we think. And so they're still looking. There's a species uh, in China, the Yangtze River softshell turtle, giant, huge, giant, huge turtle. Why is that um, have a soft shell? Soft shell, it's a type, it's a family of turtles, the soft shells. They have a leathery shell. Instead of having a very bony shell, they have like this tight leathery skin stretched over their body. Uh, it's the family Trionicidae. Anyway, in China, there, there, we think there were two uh, left of this species. Um, and one of the females died recently. Uh, so there's only a single male left that we know of. We believe there might be a couple individuals in lakes in Vietnam. But as far as we know, for that species, there's only three of them left. What if you took, like, a box turtle and made it with one of those soft—would they even do it? No, there are hybridization uh, observations in turtles, but they're rare, and they need to be pretty closely related species to be able to do that. So um, we think that uh, for that particular soft-shell species, we really need to find another female for that male. It's a sad story with that male, too. His reproductive structures have actually been damaged at some point in the past. And so uh, the group in China that was trying to work with them uh, was actually harvesting sperm from him artificially and trying to do artificial insemination in the female. Uh, so, um, okay, cross that. Yes, yes. Mm. So, okay, we've reached this point in, in the podcast where have you ever been to yoga? 
I've done yoga. I've never gone to a class, but I've done it in my living room. Oh, okay. Well, if you ever go to a class, there's this time where the yoga teacher will say, like, okay, like, if there's anything you wanted to work on today, but you didn't get a chance, like, is there any, like, major, like, big, like, column of things that, like, we didn't get to in turtles stuff? Like, what do we need to know about turtles that I didn't get to? How are they doing these days? Like, how could we be, how could we be more supportive of turtles? Uh, we can support turtles like with supporting other wildlife. Mainly, we need to give turtles a place to live and we need to stop killing them. So if we support any efforts to habitat conservation, just local parks, local nature centers, uh, forested habitats that haven't been developed yet, any sort of land conservation, wetlands conservation will be good for turtles. And then we just need to keep an eye out for turtles uh, so that we don't accidentally kill them. Turtles have adapted this lifestyle where very few of the babies live to be adults. And so those adults are extremely valuable. Uh, It might have taken a thousand babies to end up with that one adult. And so the worst possible thing we can do to a turtle population is to kill those adults that Mm -hmm. took 20, 30, 40 years to get to reproductive age. How long do turtles live? We don't entirely know is the correct answer. We believe that there's definitely individuals that have lived over 100 years, but it's only been in the last 100 that we've really started paying attention to this question. So what we really want to see over beyond my lifetime is turtles that were marked as known individuals with a microchip or something in populations now uh, and how long you know, can we still find them into the future? I wonder what the earliest living microchipped turtle is now. Like, Well, not necessarily microchipped, but we have colleagues in the Midwestern U.S. that started um, marking turtles by these little uh, notches that you can uh, etch on the shell uh, in the 1950s. And some of those turtles are still there and still reproducing. Ah! And it, at the time they marked them, they were adults. So those turtles might already be 100 years old and they're still reproducing. Wow, that's really interesting. Wait, but I feel like I cut you off when I was in the middle of asking you the yoga recess part. Like what's, oh yeah, conservation, wetlands, conserve stuff, donate to, is there any like major like turtle rescue places that you there love? Are, there are major turtle conservation organizations globally. Uh, the Turtle Survival Alliance is one of them, turtlesurvival.org. The Turtle Conservancy is based here in New York City, does excellent work globally. Uh, So those two organizations are really looking out for the world's turtles, deploying emergency personnel to um, parts of the world where turtle conservation is sorely needed. And we're also training people in those countries um, how to conserve their own turtles. It's hard when countries are faced with more important issues like warfare and poverty and climate change to get them to focus on something as simple as turtle conservation. Um, And so we don't need just turtle scientists to be working on this. We need politicians and lawyers and social justice warriors to, you know, try to get the world to be generally a better place for wildlife. Oh, Dr. Ennis, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been Uh fun. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Dr. Charles J. Ennis. You'll find links to his work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe, honeys. Getting Curious is produced by me, Julie Carrillo, Ray Ellis, Chelsea Jacobson, and Colin Anderson. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. <laughs>